I'd assume Dr. Loomis would be here. Michael Myers is still his patient. If Loomis read memos, he'd be here. Fortunately, his position is more ceremonial than medical. And with Myers gone, my hope is that he'll either transfer, retire, or die. All right, let's move him. The Film Effect Podcast, where we take all things film to the full effect. My name's Ed. I'm all alone this week, guys. I'm all alone. Steering the ship all by my lonesome. But before we return to the town of Haddonfield, I want to let you guys know that our ever-growing collection of previous episodes can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, and wherever else you enjoy your favorite shows. Check out our brand new website at podpage.com slash the-film-effect-podcast. That's podpage.com slash the-film-effect-podcast with dashes in between all words. There you can access everything Film Effect related in one place, including all of our episodes along with our merch store and other neat things. One access stop at podpage.com slash the-film-effect-podcast. Check it out. So, for the hell of it, you guys can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Handles there are the Film Effect Podcast. Twitter, we're at Film Effect Pod. And if you're straight up old school and you're still swimming in those endless AOL discs from the early aughts, our email is thefilmeffectpodcast at gmail.com. And one last thing, guys, reviews and ratings are always help with the algorithm and you too can help by leaving us your honest reviews and ratings on apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen that accepts such wonderful things all right let's do some shout outs shout out to his family all right here we go first and foremost film floggers i really enjoyed their water world episode recently they also covered halloween 4 last year it was a mixed bag but in the end i can definitely see that they at least respect this film's cult following love the mrs doubtfire references in regard to uh the myers mask throughout it's pretty funny stuff so uh definitely check them out film floggers Shout out to Best Film Ever. Check out their episode on Mink, as well as their interview with Sean Persaud, uh, which can be accessed separately from the actual episode. They also dropped Ferris Bueller today, and so far, it's another home run from them, guys. Reminder that one of their co-hosts, Ian, will be joining us at the end of the month for our Hateful Eight episode, so definitely check that out. That'll be the final episode dropped this month, Hateful Eight. Coming up soon, guys, right around the corner. Shout out to your next favorite movie, Short and Sweet. The host, Josh, does not like spoilers in case they're turning new fans onto the films they're covering, and I respect that. Uh, he listened along to our episodes and noticed me saying pronouns, pal, one of the episodes, and uh, 
He knew right away where I came from. I thought that was pretty damn funny. Um, he's also a big fan of our Killer Joe episode, so props to him for that. He's been listening to our Halloween episodes, so many thanks for that as well. So shout out to your next favorite movie, The Effin' Nerds Podcast, who are wondering where the Halloween Kills trailer is. Well, stay tuned for my theory on that coming right up. In the meantime, check out the review on A Quiet Place Part 2. Shout out to Jolene at It Goes Down in the PM. So many thanks for the support and all the kind words on last week's Goodwill Hunting episode. I apologize again for the quality. Hopefully we start making up for it with this. And last but not least, the Even the Score podcast. Many thanks for their continued support. All right, we're charting in Hong Kong. We are currently 94th in Nigeria, 85th in France, and 196th here in the U.S. Welcome, welcome, welcome our new listeners in the Netherlands. All right, current events. Wanted to start this out by saying rest in peace, Ned Beatty, on behalf of myself and Sean, who couldn't be here for this episode. I mean, admittedly, Sean's a bigger fan than I am because he's more familiar with the guy's work than me. He's a lot older than me. So, sorry, Sean, it's true. You got 10 years on my ass. So, uh, I remember him from Deliverance. Uh, Otis from Superman, Superman 2. Uh, more recently, he was the voice of Lotso Bear from Toy Story 3. Um, and I, I'm missing out on just so many films, um, but he has quite the legacy he leaves behind. Decades full of just quality material. And again, definitely going to be missed. So rest in peace, Ned Beatty, on behalf of us at the Film Effect Podcast. Also, we just found out recently that Rob Zombie's next film is going straight to the Peacock streaming service, and that will be a Monsters retelling. So if you know Rob Zombie and you know, you know, his old school love and appreciation for shows and films from, you know, the 60s, 70s, um, I got a feeling that he's going to do good things with this. And I'm kind of curious, you know, um, if I were to place a bet, I would say he's probably going to have a cameo or two from some of the original monsters. Um, I'm sure he'll have Butch Patrick in there. He'll probably have Bill Mosley or whoever else. You know, I, I can almost guarantee you his wife's going to be in that movie. Um, Clint Howard might make an appearance. I'm just spitballing names from, you know, regulars from Rob Zombie's films. I'm sure Malcolm McDowell will have a role somewhere in the film. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I'm curious. That's all I can really say at this point. It was literally just announced last week. So, uh, yeah, I know myself and I know my colleague Sean's curious. He's a big zombie fan, too. So we'll uh, be sure to keep our ears and eyes tuned in for that one. Weekly Recommends. What would you get for a six-year-old boy who chronically wets his bed? All right, so this week I'm recommending to you guys a film that I've talked about recently, a film that I finally went ahead and rewatched for the first time in a little while, and that is Serial Mom, a personal favorite of mine. Definitely my favorite John Waters film. Not, it, It's a lot more than the fact that the film was shot right around the corner from my hometown where I currently still live. Um, I just think it's a hilarious movie. Kathleen Turner knocks it out of the park. It features a very young Matthew Lillard. Sam Waterston's in it, and he's hilarious as always. Um, I just think the film is one of the best that he's done. Or actually, I think it's just the best that he's done. The funniest. 
um, it, it, it kind of pulls, it kind of tugs with my uh, horror roots there a little bit. And uh, yeah, you can definitely tell his inspiration where it came from while he was making that. Um, also wanted to mention as far as um, in, in conjunction with uh, Serial Mom recommendation this week that I think in a couple months we're going to start opening up a YouTube page. And one of the first videos that I personally want to do is a filming locations video. Now I know that they've become a thing on YouTube recently. They're everywhere. But I'm not going to make it just a filming locations thing. It's just going to be a one and done for me only because the entire film was shot right around here. I went to the um, the, the Supkins house, which is like 10 minutes from here, uh, just last summer. And I just got the inspiration. You know what? If I can get to this house this easily, I'm sure the rest of the film, I know Towson High School, where the high school was, was right down the street from there too. So I think I'm going to be doing that and I'm going to have some fun with it. And I think that'll be the first video once we eventually open up our YouTube page. I think I will have that um, timed coordinately with the release of this video. So they'll both come out neck and neck. So yeah, that'll wrap up the weekly recommends and let's dive into the film of the episode. So guys, 10 years ago, he terrorized an entire town on Halloween, leaving behind a body count that makes Dahmer's count look like child's play. Well, tonight he returns. This is Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Ten years ago, on the night of October 31st, a small Midwestern town fell victim to an escaped killer. Under the cover of darkness, he carried out the most horrifying mass murder on record. Sixteen people in cold blood. Ever since that night, no one has forgotten his name. And Halloween has never been the same. Now, Michael Myers has come home. He has returned for one more night of unholy terror. here to kill that little girl and anybody who gets in his way. Oh, God. Who's going to be next? Ah! <laughs> Halloween 4, the return of Michael Myers. Maybe nobody knows how to stop him. All right, so before we dive into the episode, I wanted to let you guys in on some Halloween Kills news. Now, as far as news itself goes, there is none. None. None for this week. Although, we should be getting a trailer as soon as the marketing campaign is set to kick off in full motion, which should be in a couple weeks with the release of The Forever Purge in early July. A few years ago when Halloween 2018 came out, that previous July before October was the last Purge film, and that was what set off the Halloween marketing campaign. So there's no doubt in my mind that Blumhouse and Universal are waiting for this next Purge film, or the, the final Purge film, whatever the hell it's called, to do this. There's no doubt in my mind. In fact, if I were a betting man, I would put a Vegas bet on a trailer being attached to that print on July 2nd. So 
for those curious, that's my personal theory. Um, I'm pretty confident in that theory. So, in fact, I'm willing to sign off on that theory. That's how confident I am that in just a matter of weeks, we should be getting our first real look at what's coming this October. And I cannot be any more excited. All right, so first-time viewings. Uh, it's, it's just that. You see, this is actually uh, my, my first time. No, no, my first, it's my first time uh, since my first time. So technically, that's my second time, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to suck at it. So if I'm not up to, uh... um, for me, this was a Cinemax favorite from my for my childhood. Um, almost every other night, I swear this movie was on. I used to watch it together with Halloween Five. In fact, um, it's just one of them childhood favorites, um, which leads into my story time. I've seen this film the most out of the entire series, hands down. It had a massive impact on my childhood, especially with Myers being blasted away at the end. I always thought that they did a um, the dynamite bit in this film, but come to find out watching this later on in life, it, that was actually filmed for Halloween 5. So, yeah, um, it's kind of a Mandela thing for me. Um, yeah, it was just, I loved the end. Uh, it had a, it had, used to have a big impact on me, just the way that the, the cops just riddled him with bullets and he just fell into that little mining shaft or whatever it was. Um, and then of course, you know, the ending with, uh, Jamie and the, the transfer of power, so to speak. I just still, you know, I'll touch more on it later on when we, when we get to the actual moment, but it just... All that stuff had an impact on my six, seven-year-old self. And, you know, that's the reason I love horror the way I do is, be, you know, this film is one of the main reasons why I'm such a horror fan, you know. And I wanted to get that point across in this episode because I have a lot, I owe a lot to this film, I feel, or at least my, my horror heart does, so to speak. And so, yeah, this was a big deal for me. And, um... Let's dive into it, shall we? Here we go! So, the film starts with the text October 30th, 1988, followed by my favorite opening credit sequence of the series with the dimmed atmospheric sounds. It's not really a song per se, it's just how it's just Alan Howarth with uh playing with the keyboard a little bit here, and it's effective. It's set to various shots of Haddonfield. Or so does, it's supposed to be Haddonfield, but it's just, it's clearly, you know, a Western town outside of Salt Lake City where the movie was shot itself. Um, it's shots of fields with barns. You can actually see some mountain shots in the background. It's very visible in certain shots. Um, originally here, Alan B. McElroy wanted to, or he actually had written kind of a prologue with the very end. It took us back to the end of part three and it was supposed to focus it on a wall and suddenly an explosion happens and you see this kind of fireball shoot past the camera that was supposed to act as Dr. Loomis to show how he didn't die in the fire because in the final product here, we just kind of see him walking like, hey, Last time we saw you, you were saying see you in hell and explosion. And then now we're seeing you walking down a hallway with a cane and a couple of burn marks. And it's like, well, what the hell? The original opening was supposed to explain that. 
he didn't perish in the fire. He was merely blasted away out of the fire. And that's how he got away with just a couple scars on his face and, and hands. So um, kind of wish they went back and did that. I know um, Dwight H. Little, the director and the writer, uh, Alan B. McElroy, um, they wish they had time and money to do it. Who knows? It would have been a different film altogether. Uh, the film then focuses on an ambulance from Smith's Grove driving at night through a thunderstorm to its destination at Ridgemont Federal Sanitarium. This is when two staff members get out and go in, check in their patient pickup. They're greeted by a pretty zany-looking security guard played by character actor Raymond O'Connor, most famous as Ranger Bob from Michael Bay's The Rock, in case you guys uh, forgot just uh, who I'm talking about. So the guard takes the two down to the patient in an elevator. Jesus. Jesus ain't got nothing to do with this place. Durham provides everybody with exposition dialogue explaining the events of Halloween 2 in the first film. I like that the movie does this now. Gets out of the way, first five minutes or so. Just get this exposition dialogue out so we can just... Continue on with a straightforward slasher flick and not look back, just forward. So when they get down to the basement, the guard welcomes them to hell and then takes them to the room where they're greeted by Dr. Hoffman. So Hoffman here goes with one of the medics to sign paperwork while the other stays and checks the vitals of the patient. I want to note, I keep on saying the patient because the film still hasn't told us out loud that they're picking up Michael Myers yet. His name isn't heard until the next scene. Michael's arm falls down from his side when the medic's checking on him, which startles her a bit. And then in the other room, this is where we hear his name. Because the medic, uh, that, that Hoffman's roof says that he assumed Dr. Loomis would be there since Michael Myers is still his patient. Hoffman responds by saying that if he read his memos, he'd be there. But fortunately, his position is more ceremonial than medical. And with Myers gone, his hope is that he'll either retire, transfer, or die. And this is when we hear the other medic yell, all right, let's move them. And then we get that beautiful, beautiful Halloween score for the first time in the film as they're moving Myers outside and into the ambulance. A return to that wonderful piano after Halloween to the synth score. This time with Carpenter protege Alan Howarth composing the film all by his lonesome. Uh, note the last two films, Howarth was there with Carpenter. Now Carpenter is completely out of the fray. He no longer has anything to do with this series until Halloween 2018. And so, yeah, it's just Alan Howarth. Uh, so during the ride, one medic randomly asks if Hoffman mentioned any living relatives. And the other one says, yes, actually, a niece living in his hometown. So Michael hears all of this and then instantly kills the medic by bashing his head continuously against the truck and then shoves his thumb right inside the dude's forehead as the other medic screams out loud. This is where we're introduced to young Jamie Lloyd, played by Daniel Harris, uh, Michael's niece. Uh, she's watching outside her living room window at night and sees the ambulance pulled over during the big storm outside. And this is where we find out that she's adopted. Uh, she has an older adopted sister named Rachel, um, comes down. Jamie asks her if she's loved like an actual sister and Jamie looks back outside to see the ambulance now gone and Rachel tells Jamie that she knows she misses her parents. Uh, this is where we also find out that it's been 11 months since the accident that quote unquote killed her parents. Uh, Rachel then takes Jamie up to bed and promises French toast for breakfast. So this is where 
we get the big nightmare scene with Jamie in her room. It's dark. There's lightning flashes outside. Big storm going on. The setting's just right for a key horror sequence. And believe me, this is one that stuck out even to me when I was a kid. So she goes to her closet and she has this little box, like a shoe box, full of old pictures and stuff of her mother, Lori Strode. It's just promotion photos from the first fo- uh, first film with Jamie Lee Curtis. But um, I like how they play that with into the... Uh, I like how they incorporate that into the story here. So she checks out the stuff, and then she goes to her bed and kneels down and says a little prayer. And then she goes back to her closet again after she sees the door creaking open. And while she's checking around, she hears the floor creaking. So she closes the door, brushes it off, goes back to bed. But then the door opens again and when she goes to check on it or close it rather michael myers suddenly pulls her down from underneath the bed and starts pulling her in and this scene like i said has always stuck with me it's funny because we see michael here uh, i think the first time we see him is when she walks past her mirror and the lightning flashes and there's this really cool effect where you see him as the lightning flashes but then he's gone when she goes to open up her bedroom door which is apparently locked she finally gets it open but michael's out on the other end of the door clearly a nightmare because number one he hasn't even gotten the mask yet and number two he ain't breaking the laws of physics here but you know yeah so I love the lighting when she opens up the door and Michael's standing there with a knife. There's it's a really neat shot with like this light shining through him that I've I've always dug and appreciated. So then uh, everyone rushes through uh, her rescue and she's found in the closet holding her little uh, toy bear, just cradling and crying. Um, like I said, this it's just been an effective scene for me, always has been, and even watching it just recently for this episode. I found it rather effective. So it's nice that it still works after 30-something odd years. And then it says, Haddonfield, Illinois, October 31st, 1988. So it's Halloween time, and we meet the Carruthers, Richard and Darlene, who are the parents of Rachel and Jamie. Uh, Mrs. Pierce calls to cancel babysitting plans for that night for Jamie because her daughter broke her ankle ice skating. So this is when Darlene tells Rachel that she needs to cancel her plans. Um, Well, first she tells her that she needs to eat an actual breakfast, which Rachel responds in such an over-the-top manner and so dramatic too. Mom, I'm on a diet. You want an oinker for a daughter, she says? It's like, get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Um, And Rachel's mom, like I said, told her that she has to cancel her date with Brady to babysit Jamie and Rachel's, um, to babysit Jamie. And Rachel's response here is the textbook definition of an entitled teenager when she goes on and on and on about her future with Brady, depending on this Halloween date. She even says that she thinks Brady was ready to make a commitment, but all that's now wiped out because she's got to babysit little Jamie Lloyd, all thanks to Mrs. Pierce's daughter, Susan, who couldn't stay up on her feet at the Haddonfield Ice Rink. So Jamie hears this and tells Rachel she's sorry for ruining everything, and if she wasn't there, she could still go out before storming off. Good job, Rachel. That little girl needs all the love we can give her right now. All you can do is think about yourself. Rachel goes up to Jamie's room now, and she apologizes and explains everything, smooths things over, saying that she can go out with Brady tomorrow night instead, and that she's taking Jamie trick-or-treating for that night. She says that she'll pick her up from school, and the two can go get ice cream. Double scoops! So this is where we're introduced to Dr. Loomis, or I'm sorry, (laughs) reintroduced 
to Dr. Loomis. Uh, once again, like I said, played by Don, Donald Pleasance. Uh, he's using a cane to walk to get around, and we see him going down this hallway, and he storms into Hoffman's office, and he's pissed because he was not informed of Michael's transfer. Why well, wasn't I notified? About what? You know damn well about what. You let them take it out of here. For Christ's sake, spare me the speech. I've listened to it for a decade. The fact is that Michael Myers was a federal patient and a federal prisoner, therefore he is subject to federal law. We're not talking about any ordinary prisoner, Hoffman. We are talking about evil on two legs. <laughs> I can see this is useless. Do you know what today is? Do you know the date? Every day I look at myself in the mirror, and, and every day I remember. Look at me, Hoffman. Take a good look. I don't want anyone to have to live through that night again. I've said this before. I think you're the one who needs mental help. Yes, Dr. Hoffman. I see. I see, thank you. Apparently, there was an accident just south of Mill Creek near the... Loomis! Loomis! Uh, one thing I wanted to note here is uh, the egg that's on Donald Pleasant's face in this scene. It'll be fixed for later scenes, but this was kind of the reason why they retouched on his makeup because apparently Donald Pleasant's girlfriend on set was laughing at him and saying that he looked like he had an egg on his face. So he wasn't, wasn't too keen on the design. So, but... This egg shot did make it into the final cut, but later scenes it'll be fixed. Uh, so Hoffman suddenly gets a phone call and he tells Loomis that there was an accident. So if Loomis responding with such a quickness, him and Hoffman arrive on scene with the ambulances flipped over in a shallow riverbank of some sort. Uh, we're told that there were five total people in the bus, quote unquote, but it's hard to tell how many bodies there were since they're all chewed up. Uh, I also want to mention the shot of uh, Loomis looking um, looking on the side of the bloody ambulance from the water and coming out saying that he's gone. Loomis wants Loomis, Loomis wants Loomis, Hoffman wants Loomis to give the troopers a chance to find Myers, but Loomis says he's going to Haddonfield instead. It's a four-hour drive, and he can be reached through local police. If they don't find him in four hours, Loomis is sure he will. So then we cut to Penny's Diner, which is like a... It, Penny service service shop slash diner. Uh, Michael's there with he's wrapped up like the modern day mummy. Uh, he kills the mechanic uh, when he was looking for his nine sixteenth bolt, and Michael just impales him as he pushes himself out from underneath the car that he's working on. Uh, we then cut to an undisclosed amount of time later with Loomis arriving and having his first confrontation with Myers. So Jamie's being picked on in school for being an orphan and having a dead mother. Sort of mirrors the way Tommy Doyle got picked on in the first movie. Boogeyman, boogeyman, Jamie's uncle's a boogeyman. How 
welcome your mommy didn't make you a costume, Jamie. How could you? Her mommy's dead. Jamie's mommy's a mommy. Stop it, okay? Stop it! Jamie's an orphan. Jamie's an orphan. Jamie, please stop it! Jamie's an orphan. Jamie's an orphan. Jamie's an orphan. Jamie's an orphan. Every day is Halloween at Jamie's house. She gets picked up by Rachel and her friend Lindsay. I'm pretty sure they're trying to imply that this is Lindsay Wallace from the original film, although it's not really confirmed. I'm going to say it's a coincidence, but we'll let the other fans of the series decide that. Jamie suddenly wants to go trick-or-treating, so they go to the drugstore, which is Vincent Drug, where Brady's working until 6, it's established. So at Vincent Drug... Brady's there flirting with the town babe, Kelly, played by the bride of the reanimator herself, Kathleen Kinmont. There's also a bunch of his friends around. One of them is apparently Tommy Doyle from the first film. Uh, their buddy Wade, everybody bets 10 bucks each that he won't go ask uh, Kelly out on a date. So he goes to approach her and gets told right away to fuck off. Fuck off, Wade, before he can even utter a word. And this is where Jamie and Rachel get dropped off out front. And we see the tow truck parked across the street from Penny's that Michael escaped from. Yeah, let me double back to the confrontation with Myers with the, at, the, at the, um, the, the Penny's place. So Loomis sees Myers in the dining area and he starts talking to him. And then he pulls out his gun and shoots at him. But Myers suddenly disappears. And then Myers suddenly runs him over out, runs him off outside in the tow truck that he escapes with. And he apparently kind of pulls on an electrical cord in the process, which causes a fire since it's a gas station. Gasoline plus fire equals big boom, boom. So that happens and it, the, the blast knocks Loomis out of the frame, um, out of the scene and out of the way. So... Like I said, that tow truck that Myers escaped with, uh, we see it parked out front here when Rachel and Jamie get dropped off. So inside, Rachel approaches Brady about the bad news she has while Jamie goes to pick out a costume. Uh, what costume does Jamie pick out? Well, it is a clown costume that mirrors the costume little Michael Myers wore when he was six years old at the beginning of the first film. When he killed his sister, of course, there's even an inserted shot of a young bloody Michael holding a knife that fades into her with it on display. And this is when Michael grabs his mask and scares the shit out of Jamie, sending her back into a mirror, shattering it in the process. She's screaming, freaking out. Everyone's attending to her. Then we get a quick shot of Michael exiting the scene from a piece of broken glass that I've always dug. It's a nice little shot. Just... Touching back on this sequence here in general, when Jamie goes back to look for a costume, I've always dug all the old school Don Post latex masks on display. It reminds me of back in the day when I would go around this time of year and get my yearly costume and just spend most of my time being amazed by all the masks at the store before picking out the costume. It's just, I get nostalgic, that's all. So Loomis, without a car now, hitches a ride back to Haddonfield, and he, the first person just blows right by him. And then this Cadillac full of cheerleaders stop for him, and he goes, and he's hustling to get in the car with them. Then as he gets to the car, they just take off and blow dirt in his face. So after the dirt kind of 
clears the air, we see a truck pull up behind him, and it's uh, Reverend Jackson P. Sayer, played by character actor Carmen Philpy. Now, Carmen Philpy, I remember him as the old man from The Wedding Singer at the end. Um, Sounds like a country song. You know, the guy who's uh, just at the bar repeating a bunch of stuff that uh, Sandler and his buddy, uh, Alan Covert's character, uh, just are saying. He's repeating them and stuff. You know, if you know The Wedding Singer, you know who I'm talking about. I mean, the Sounds Like a Country Song bit should have gave it away. So... I love this touch here with this with the, the Reverend and, and Loomis. It's just a couple of pilgrims having a drink together. I love it. Get it in here, old man. I ain't got till judgment day. Thank you. Anything for a fellow pilgrim? We're all on a quest. Sometimes we need help getting where we want to be. Reverend Jackson P. Sayer of Dumont County. Pleased to make your acquaintance. How far are you going, Mr. Sayer? God's country, promised land. Where are you heading, Mr. Uh... Loomis? Haddon Field. Car trouble? Sort of. You're hunting it, ain't you? Yeah, you're hunting it, all right. Just like me. What are you hunting, Mr. Sayer? Apocalypse, end of the world, Armageddon. It's always got a face and a name. I've been hunting the bastard for 30 years, give or take. Come close a time or two. Too damn close. You can't kill damnation, mister. It don't die like a man dies. I know that, Mr. Sayer. Oh, you're a pilgrim, all right. I saw it on your face back there in the dust. I saw it clear as breasts and blue suede shoes. Would you like a drink? Yes, we'll gather at the river. The beautiful, beautiful river. So then it's Halloween night, and we got the kids trick-or-treating and TPing the town square, and the Carruthers are leaving for their event in hopes of Richard getting a big promotion that will determine whether they vacation in the Bermuda or their parents' house in Cleveland. So before going out to trick-or-treat, uh, Rachel calls Brady, but his mother tells her that he never came home from work. So, hmm. Jamie rushes Rachel out the door, and the two get out. Michael then enters the house and then he goes upstairs and through Jamie's box of old pictures, including one that he holds up of Laurie Strode. Then we cut to uh, Loomis entering the sheriff's house asking for Brackett, but is told that Brackett retired back in 81 and he moved down to St. Petersburg, Florida. So instead, we're introduced to Sheriff Meeker, played here by Bo Starr, who was previously on the show. Goodfellas, he played Henry Hill's father, the guy who just beat the shit out of him when he was young. Well, here he is, two years prior to that, playing the sheriff now of Halloween 4, and he'll be uh, returning for the fifth film as well. He says that no one forgets Loomis's face and asks how he can help. Loomis says Michael Myers is back and that Jamie Lloyd is in mortal danger. 
Shamikra says, Myers has been locked up since before she was even born, doesn't even know what she looks like. And this is when Loomis yells out that he's come across six bodies on his journey back to Haddonfield and that Michael Myers is there in the town to kill that little girl and anyone else who gets in his way. So instead of being hesitant, Meeker takes Loomis's word for it and instantly gets on board with helping Loomis to avoid having a repeat of 10 years ago. <clears throat> and this is all confirmed when the phone lines out of town are down. So we get cut back to Jamie and Rachel trick-or-treating. Jamie wants to stay outside all night, but Rachel says, no way, kiddo, we're home by 10. Jamie then encounters the kids who were knocking her name through the mud earlier, and they compliment her costume, total 180, and ask her if she wants to join them at the next house, which happens to belong to Kelly from Vincent Drug, the town babe I was talking about. Rachel then spots Brady inside and puts two and two together. He notices her noticing him, and he runs out after her as Jamie continues on with the kids. Um, Rachel then ends up losing Jamie in the process. Um, we cut to a bar now with this local bartender, Earl. There's a news report that the sheriff has ordered all Haddonfield citizens to head inside immediately and for all businesses to shut down ASAP. So Earl tries calling the station because he ain't closing down without a damn good reason, but the phone just rings and rings. So the man takes a drink straight from the bottle and rounds the lynch mob up. They get in their trucks and head, get their shotguns together and head down to the station to see what the hell's going on. So Loomis and Meeker then enter the Carruthers house and Loomis spots the box of photos on the ground as well as the family dog killed by Michael Myers. So they've got a dead dog and a box full of old pictures. Meeker orders his guys to stay at the house as the two head back out together. Um, I'm sorry, guy. And that guy is the deputy. And then we get the Bucky scene. Michael Myers approaching this electrician named Bucky who's working on this power grid. Um, I'm not sure what to call this thing. Um, and by the way, this is also a scene that always stood out to me when I was a kid, this kill in particular. Uh, all, every city and town has one of these. It's like this big, it's, it's where all the power source comes from. And meanwhile, this guy, Bucky's working on it. And Michael pops up and he gives the guy, the guy gives Michael shit for trespassing. And when he goes to call the police, Michael grabs him and throws him into the, the, the unit and electrocutes, electrocutes him in the process as well as shuts out all the power for Haddonfield. So power's down in Haddonfield. The grid's been tampered with. Bucky fucked it up for everybody. So now with Haddonfield in darkness, we see all the parents come pick their kids up off the streets while they're trick-or-treating. Meanwhile, Rachel still cannot find Jamie, but Michael's around. Jamie's showing walking around lost, intercut with Rachel looking for her. And this is where Rachel spots Michael, quote unquote, and makes a run for it. She eventually finds Jamie, the two embrace, and then Loomis and Meeker find them as we see a number of Michaels surrounding them, all masked up in the suits, the whole nine. So when Loomis pulls his gun out, they all unmask themselves and run away laughing. Just a bunch of kids. Meeker yelled at him to go to hell home. So Meeker takes off and we see the real Michael standing in the road behind them in a really cool, nice shot. You got the night night light and the fog. It's just, um, I don't know, it's good stuff. So then Meeker and Loomis get back to the police station and it is a bloodbath. I wish that we saw this actual massacre. It's unfortunate they never even filmed it. Um... We just get the aftermath, and it's just—it's everything's just destroyed. There's bodies everywhere. 
Michael sees one of his guys on the ground dead. His arm has been cut off. So he looks at Loomis and he asks how a man can do this. And Loomis says, it wasn't a man. It was evil. Then outside, they're greeted by Earl's lynch mob. You just created a lynch mob. You haven't got a police force. These men may be the only defense you've got. So the deputy at the Carruthers house goes out to his car to leave for Meyer, to leave for Meeker's house where all of the units are meeting. And while he's on the radio, the camera pans to the back seat to show Michael laying down, hitching a ride. Good stuff. Uh, after he leaves, we see Darlene and Richard arrive back at the house to no one there. Um, and then this is where the lynch mob fucking a guy in the back of the truck swears he sees Michael down at the, at the town square. So they go, go ahead for it. They park. He's like, he's in the bushes. They stay, they all lock up their their weapons and are pointing and aiming. And then all of a sudden they see a little bush move and they all start firing. I mean, they must have emptied at least 15, 20 shells into this damn thing. And they go back and Earl just says, shit. It's Ted Hollister. Shit, Earl. It's Ted Hollister. You dumb son of a bitch. You said you saw Myers. So we never see who Ted Hollister is. He's, but I've gathered that he's like the Haddonfield bum. Everyone knows his name, like Cheers, so to speak. So then we cut to Brady and Kelly at the house by the, by the fire and they're getting intimate. Suddenly, Meeker and his company arrive. The kids rush to get dressed as everyone gets inside. Meeker has Rachel take Jamie upstairs as he grabs a shotgun from his gun cabinet. He gives it the he gives it the Brady and asks if he's ever used one. If he knows how to, I'm sorry. He gives it, gives it the Brady and asks if he knows how to use it. So then he gives him a hammer and roofing nails and sends him up that he had it to secure the place, but not before telling him that if he catches him groping his daughter, he's going to use that shotgun on him. So the deputy runs out to his car to grab his gun, and we see that he discovers the back seat, <clears throat> the back door left wide open. Michael Myers is here. So Brady checks on Rachel and Jamie. Jamie, <clears throat> Rachel tells Brady that this is all because of Michael Myers from 10 years ago, and that Jamie's his niece, and the place is now completely sealed. Sucks for them, because lo and behold, Michael Myers is actually inside with them the whole time, but... What are you going to do? They had no idea. The only way in or out is the front door and the deadbolt key, which Meager gives to the deputy to hold on to while he guards the door. So he has Kelly make coffee for everyone and then heads down to the basement with Loomis to call out for help. When there's radio down there, they're getting in touch with state police. Um, meanwhile, Kelly's over here making coffee and just to let everyone know, she's still wearing that oversized t-shirt in her skimpy underwear. A shirt that says, cops do it by the book. That's it. 
I mean, no pants, no nothing. And Meeker's like, hey, this apparently. Nothing said. So just, I don't know. <laughs> just an observation, that's all. So this next shot is fucking scary as hell to me. We got Rachel asking the deputy when they can go home. The deputy says it'll all be over soon. And then we get a quick, 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 guys. Blink and you'll miss it shot of Michael from a distance in the house. This is so small, but it's so effective because I never even noticed it until about two years ago. And my own daughter pointed it out. That's how I found out about this. All these years I watched this movie. Remember the beginning of the episode I was telling you guys how I used to always watch Halloween before I grew up with it, this, that, and the third. Yeah, well, I guess I didn't pay that much attention because it wasn't until, like I said, about a year or two ago I discovered this quick shot. And believe me, it's fucking scary. Just this white mask in the background. and I should have always picked up on it because there's a music cue to go with it, but I don't know. It's something I've always overlooked and sucks that I did because, I don't know, if here I am, 36 years old, thinking that's scary. Imagine how it would have felt 30 years ago seeing it for the first time. I, I don't know. So Meeker successfully gets in touch with the state police. Loomis goes out and leaves for the Carruthers' house to find their parents. Uh, Rachel and Kelly have a confrontation in the kitchen, finally. They have a little fight about Brady and personal choices. That ends with Rachel dumping coffee over Kelly's shirt and going downstairs to work Meeker's, hearing about Ted Hollister being killed. So he tells Rachel to stay, listen for confirmation from the state police while he leaves to stop the lynch mob before they go kill someone else. So he also tells her to uh, alert Deputy Logan upstairs once this all happens. So then we get Kelly's death scene. She's fixing coffee and bringing it out to the deputy saying, she says, wish they'd fix the power. At least we'll have some MTV while we wait for the Calvary. It's like, oh man, MTV reference. Back when MTV played music videos, those were the days. So she lights a candle and as she lights it, the flame indicates the deputy's body uh, removed from the chair which means the person in the chair is not the deputy. It's, in fact, Michael Myers holding this shotgun, takes the shotgun and probably the film's most famous death scene, impales her with the shotgun through the door, kind of mirroring Bob's death scene in the first film, but obviously this time it's a shotgun. Uh, and, um, yeah, one thing to mention... Tom Morga plays Myers in this scene, along with the penny sequence and when he puts on the mask inside Vincent Drug. Uh, that's all Tom Morga, stuntman, very famous in the horror community. He was also Jason in Friday the 13th Part 5, A New Beginning. He also played Leatherface in the beginning of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 on the bridge scene when uh, the, the two yuppies get their meet their demise. That's played by uh, Tom Morga. So Morga's been Michael Myers. He's been Leatherface. He's been Jason Voorhees. Uh, he's been around. Tom Morga is pretty well known in the horror community. And um, I believe he's retired now from doing stunts. But yeah, he's a big stuntman like most of these actors were. Uh, so the state police confirmed that they'll have men in Haddonfield in 35 minutes. So Rachel goes up to let the deputy know. And this is where she discovers his body, along with Kelly's hanging on the door. So she runs upstairs to Jamie and discovers that Jamie's gone. So she goes to head back down, but runs into Brady. This is where Myers appears, and Brady goes with his shotgun. 
and uh, tries to shoot the uh, locks on the, the door to get it to open for him, the front door. And he goes, ah, it's metal. And Rachel cries out, what does that mean? Well, it means y'all ain't going nowhere. That's what it means. So Jamie appears suddenly on the staircase as Michael slowly approaches. Uh, Rachel and Jamie make a run for it up to the attic. Brady stays behind and tries to fight Michael, but to no avail. Come on now. Um, I've always felt this scene reminded me a little bit like Friday 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. And the scene where Jason's uh, taking on... Um, I forgot the guy's name on the rooftop and uh, the guy's just punching him and punching him and punching him. And then he tells Jason to take his best shot and he gets his head knocked off with one punch. This scene sort of reminds me of that. Um, even though it's not the same, it's, it's, it's a guy standing up to Michael, kind of like the guy who's standing up to Jason. I think that's the similarity that I'm seeing here. Uh, but yeah, Brady just goes to hit Michael and Michael grabs him by the fist and, squeezes and then grabs him by the head and pretty much crushes his skull. Um, I like the little effect here with uh, Sasha Jensen, the guy who plays Brady. He uh, spits blood down before he gets his head completely crushed or, and dies. And the reason for that is apparently on, when they filmed this scene, he had a blood capsule in his mouth. Well, he kind of, I think he says that he... Uh, bit off more or there's more that he was expecting or something he was pretty much choking on it to to some extent i believe he was telling us and that's why he does the whole spit effect because uh, he legit had to um so yeah he's dead and now we get the attic with jamie and rachel throwing belongings and other stuff down the steps to slow michael down but he knocks it all out of his way and gets up to the attic at this point I want to pause because I want to talk about Michael's bulkiness because this is the part where I noticed it above all else. This, this is the part where I noticed it more than any other part of the film. So George P. Wilbur gets the credit of this movie for playing Michael Myers, even though he didn't play him 100% of the time. Like I mentioned, Tom Morgan also played uh, Myers in a few scenes. But I don't understand why they fired Morga. That's what happened. They ended up firing Morga to bring in this George P. Wilbur. Great guy. I met him once. Nice. Down to earth. But he's built like a hockey player and he's not Michael Myers. I can see this guy playing Jason maybe, like a stand-in Jason role. But Myers, he's got... They wear... They, they, they pad his shoulders up one set like they actually gave him shoulder pads and stuff and it's like it does not look right like he's got this his chest is all puffed out like he's got like he's like this big built built dude and it's like it just does not look right that's my one grip we can talk about the mask all day we're going to but for now just the character like he just does not look overall like hashtag not my Michael Myers, you know, um, but yeah, it's just something I've always just questioned, you know, why get rid of Morga? Cause clearly the scenes that Morga is Myers, it, he looks just, he, he looks the way he's supposed to, at least he's not this big bulked up dude with shoulder pads. It's, I don't know. Uh, apparently, uh, the producers did not like Tom Morga that much. I, I, I don't know. He was just suddenly let go. But like I said, a few of the sequences were still remained intact. Uh, 
so the rooftop here. So Jamie and Rachel get up on the roof. Suddenly Myers appears on one side and there's this big, you know, chase on the roof that ends. It's, and it, the roof is pretty high up off the ground. I mean, this is like a tall, this is a big house, the Meeker's house. It's like, I'm going to say there are a good 30 feet up in the air. And she lowers Rachel, I'm sorry, Rachel lowers Jamie down successfully, but then Michael attacks and she's knocked off the ledge and she's hanging on um, for dear life. And then Michael swings down at her hands and she finally lets go and falls to the ground um, and presumably dies. I don't know because uh, Jamie goes over to her and tells her to wake up, but she doesn't. Um, but real quick, I want to mention the rooftop scene here. So the rooftop was actually filmed in this big field. The way they filmed it, the way they shot it was they actually constructed like a fake roof. But instead of it being like a life size, I mean, it's life size, but instead of it being like, like I mentioned, 20, 30 feet off the ground, it was a mere six feet off the ground in this open field so that they could safely pull off, you know, the stuff that they did, you know, for this sequence here. And there's a scene where Rachel rolls down on her stomach, but when they were filming one of the production designer, one of the production guys, I guess, left the loose now hanging or exposed and she slid down and it kind of like left a gash in her stomach. So they had to kind of like stop to patch her up and then she went back to work because she was one tough cookie apparently. And yeah, so I've always found that pretty cool the way they shot this, the roof just, they recreated it, but just put it in a field and elevated it just about six feet. Just simple stuff. Dig it. Smart. I can't really think of any other film that's, you know, done something like this. So, so like I said, Rachel is down for the count. Jamie's begging her to come alive. And then Michael suddenly pops up around the corner in the background. So Jamie runs away screaming and for help in the dark streets of Hadfield. It's all her darkness in this neighborhood. I love it. Um, it's one of the things I love about this movie is because this film actually gives, it, it, it makes the town of Haddonfield feel like a character. Like I get people who kind of, you know, go back to the original in Pasadena, California, where they where they shot that. And you can see palm trees in the background. This one's no different. Salt Lake City, you can see mountains. Doesn't matter. I really truly appreciate you know little details like this, and it's like the subtlety of just her running around darkness in this neighborhood. Like Haddonfield's getting a lot of love in this movie that it normally doesn't. And I love it, guys. So she's suddenly picked up by Loomis, who says that she wants to go home. But Loomis says that they can't and asks where the schoolhouse is. So he's going to take her to the schoolhouse just to be safe. Loomis shoots the lock to get the door open. And then he says that they'll just wait for the sirens and then they'll be safe. This is where we get pink face Myers with blonde hair for just a quick shot. He pops out. Uh, apparently, the production guys grabbed the wrong mask because the masks that were brought in, there were six of them, and they all came in with the actual. Um, uh, they used the William Shatner mold, just like the original. They were going to make alter. They were, they were pretty much going to recreate the first mask. That was the idea here, and what had happened was the company sent them six not white masks they were they were it was like a pink like a pink tone with blonde hair so 
the reason why Michael's face and the mask in this film is so white and not it, 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 it clearly you put this mask up against all the other masks and this one's going to stand out like a sore thumb like I said reason for that is because they actually had to paint the whole thing white and that's why it kind of looks like he's got kind of like zits or pimples because it's just it's bubbles from all the paint that they had to use to make the thing white and um, so yeah I've seen the mask I've seen shots of the mask before they painted it and it definitely looks like the OG mask Minus a couple of altercations that, minus a couple of alterations that had to be done before that they discovered the problem, but yeah, it looks like the mask. And in another world, hadn't it been for Don Post or whomever to mess up the order, there's no doubt in my mind we would have got a Michael Myers in this film with a a mask that resembles the original and the second one for that, and b a mask that represents the poster for this movie and that's something else I want to talk about is the poster for my money this is my favorite poster of the series yeah maybe my second favorite because I still love the I still dig that original with the pumpkin but it's up there second favorite top three whatever I love the poster art for this movie one of the key things I love about the poster is that mask and I've always been pissed that we never got that mask in the actual film we got this Ooh, spooky white guy mask. Like I've grown to adjust. I, I I've adjusted to just deal with it over the years. But my younger self despised, loathed, couldn't fucking stand this mask. I mean, like I said, I'm a little bit older now. I I'm used to it. It's whatever to me. But I I now knowing what it could have been, it's like damn, who didn't do their job? Um, so yeah, the lynch mob arrives and Rachel says they all need to leave that the troopers are, uh, oh, by the way, Rachel's back. She, she woke up, uh, the troops are on the way, but they've got to get away. Oh wait, never mind. Back up. I, I skipped an entire part here. So yeah, the pink face Myers, uh, he appears and he throws Loomis out the window. So Jamie runs away and eventually finds Michael and she falls down the front stairs as she's running away again. And Michael pulls her back towards him. Out of nowhere, Rachel appears with a fire extinguisher. And I have in my notes that this is the final shot with Morga as Myers. is him getting hit with a fire extinguisher. I forgot this is also Tom Morga. So, yeah, this is when the lynch mob arrives. Rachel says they all got to leave. They, they got to get out of there. They got to leave. No need to wait. They have to get out. The troops are on their way, but they've got to get away. This is when Earl and the guys agree. And they take Rachel and Jamie off to safety. So they're driving. They pass the state troopers in the process that are uh, heading to Haddonfield to clean up their uh, little incident. But lo and behold, Michael Myers has been underneath this goddamn truck the whole time. Suddenly he appears in the back um, and then he starts picking off all of Earl's guys. There's like four or five in the back and he just starts stabbing, slicing, dicing, throws the old guy off the side. Um, yeah. Uh, I also want to mention real quick that Earl, when he passes the state troopers, that they stop for one of the state troopers to let them know who they are and what's going on. The state trooper that they talk to is played by the writer, Alan B. McElroy, who cameos as the state trooper who tells them where to go. So, yeah, um, Michael kills off the people in the back of the truck, and then he also kills Earl in the process while he's driving. Now, this is one of 
um, a handful of reshoots that happened. Uh, the close-up shot. The whole sequence wasn't reshot. It was just a close-up shot when Michael puts his hand through the window. He grabs Earl and kind of rips off like a part of his head. Um, it's pretty gnarly, actually. And like I said, the inserted gore, shot, gore shots from the movie were brought in and added in post-production. Uh, Carl Beekler came in and did it. Carl Beekler is... Um, Rest in peace, by the way. He passed away a couple years back. But Carl Beekler um, was in charge of Troll. I believe he also directed the first Troll. Not Troll 2. Not that movie, but the first one. Um, He directed one of my personal favorite Friday films, Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood. He also had his heavy hand in in effects and stuff. uh, 80s, he was like the king or one of the king of, of, of just the makeup department, you know, that made up the 80s. You had your Rick Breakers, you had your Kane Bees, you also got your Carl Beeklers, and that's where he comes in. Did a lot of full moon stuff as well. Um, but yeah, at the top of my head, I can't really pinpoint other films, but he's pretty, he's got a healthy resume. Um, he was also in Hatchet, Hatchet and Hatchet 2. So uh, yeah, look him up, guys. Carl Beekler. He's the one who came in and did a lot of these gore scenes that were um, done in the post. Um, and then, yeah, Rachel takes over, takes the wheel, and she all of a sudden slams on the brakes, and Michael flies off the truck into the front, and she goes to run him over, but instead knocks him into this makeshift graveyard all of a sudden, or whatever it is. It's uh, kind of hard to tell. I can't remember off the top of my head. And... The, the the cops and all Meeker and his guys show up uh, conveniently and Rachel in the meantime I'm, I'm sorry Jamie in the meantime goes to check on Myers after he gets knocked down and Rachel's talking to Meeker and them and Rachel I mean and Jamie grabs Michael's hand thinking that he's dead and she just holds it for a little bit and then puts it down and then she gets up to go back to Rachel and that's when they yell for her to get away from Michael. And Michael, you see his hand clench the knife that he was holding so he's alive again. And then they yell for Jamie to get down. She complies and falls forward and blast Myers away. All the police officers just empty their goddamn shotguns and pistols into Myers, seemingly killing him when he falls back into this little ditch slash mine. Um, just, he's gone. That's the intention here. That's the implication. So we cut back to the Carruthers house uh, with the finale. That's, uh, yeah, the mother, Darlene, is making a bath for Jamie. And we see Jamie put on the costume that she, well, she's already wearing it. We We see Jamie put on the mask and we get a POV shot with the mask being put on. Just like the original film, the opening scene with little six-year-old Myers and that POV shot with him walking up to his sister's room. And then he puts on the mask and we see through the eye holes like in the mask in that one. Same thing happens here. Mirrors that first film. And it's Rachel. I mean, and it's Jamie now. It's kind of implied that when she touched Michael's hand, she the power was kind of the curse or whatever you want to call this was passed on to her. And we see her kill her mother with a knife, or I'm sorry, with a pair of scissors. We see her POV shot as she's stabbing her mother to death while she's making the tub ready for her. 
And then we see Loomis yelling when he spots her. We hear screaming. That's how it is. We hear screaming of Jamie at the top of the staircase holding the bloody scissors, still dressed up as the clown with Loomis yelling, no, he's going to shoot her. But then uh, Meeker, you know, jumps in the way and, and stops Loomis. It's just Loomis yelling no. And that, my friends, wraps up Halloween for the return of Michael Myers. It's worth noting, though, that the end credits are set to that same eerie atmospheric music or sound from the opening. And it's not the traditional Halloween theme. Although that does follow this. Uh, towards the tail end of the end credits, we get the Halloween theme for the first time in the end credits. But yeah, that's that's a wrap on Halloween 4, guys. All right, so let's check the inbox. Uh, what's in the box? What's in the fucking box? The other day on Twitter, I posted that we were going to be recording this episode, and a couple of people commented. Just going to share their uh, comments on here. That's what this category is supposed to be all about. All right, so Film Floggers said, Who thought it would be a good idea to move Mr. Halloween on Devil's Eve? Well, that's a good question, guys, um, and I'm not sure why. This is not the first time and certainly not the only, not the last time in the series that they're going to transport Michael the day before Halloween. I don't know. It's it's kind of um, kind of his calling card at this point, you know what I mean? Uh, bad news for them, good for him. <laughs> good news for him, terrible for everyone else. So, uh, yeah. Frank Mendoza then said, was that random ambulance that Jamie saw out the window at the beginning when she's going for the seven-year-old Insomniac Hall of Fame, her imagination or hallucination or something? Michael wasn't in Haddonfield yet, nor did he have the mask guy. So yeah, Frank, um, that scene I've always, uh, it's, it's really hard because Number one, if it's a hallucination, then she has to have some sort of inspiration from it, which means she would have had to have seen the ambulance or heard that her uncle was being transferred. None of that happened. Um, that's why I'm kind of leaning towards it. No, kind of leaning towards the ambulance being a real thing, her actually seeing an ambulance out front and that being where the incident... No, because that means that the ambulance wouldn't show up in the river I, I guess based on the fact that we see the bank I guess given the fact that we see the ambulance in a couple scenes later flipped over bloodied up inside of a riverbank that tells me that it was a hallucination inside of Jamie's head but again where did the inspiration come from 
Same goes for the next scene when she has the nightmare about her uncle killing her with the mask on. He hadn't even retrieved the mask yet, so how did she even know? Um, it's kind of a plot hole. Um, yeah, it's just a plot hole that fans, myself included, often overlook. And yeah, that's what we'll chalk it up to. So yeah, guys, uh, that's going to wrap it up for this edition of The Inbox. And like I said, if you guys have any comments on future movies... Just follow us on Twitter at Film Effect Pod. A day or two before we shoot the episode or record it, I will be posting, you know, just like this that we're going to be recording. And if you have any comments or questions, drop them down below and it will be read on the air. That's going to be a regular thing, guys. So keep your eyes peeled, keep your ears peeled, keep everything peeled to our Twitter. I've said it before and I will say it again. Twitter is our most used platform. I'm me personally, Ed, I'm the guy who runs the socials for the uh, podcast, and uh, I'm the most active on Twitter by far, not to mention that we're trying to get handlers, uh, we're trying to get followers, Um, I've got some cool stuff I've been talking about giving away, follow us on Twitter, unfortunately, we didn't get that many new people this month, so I think I'm going to hold over the contest till next month, so it's going to carry in the next month, I'm also going to up some of the prizes too. Got that Planet of the Apes collection? How about a Predator collection? All four films in 4K digitally. That's going to be one of the giveaways, guys. Not to mention the cool shirts that we have for Film Effect. You choose the design, give us the address if you win, and we send you one of your choosing. So again, follow us on Twitter, at Film Effect Pod. And that's all you got to do. Once you follow us, you're in. End of July, I will pick three lucky people. Three lucky people will win cool shit. It's that simple. Okay. Box office receipts. In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250000 American dollars. You take it out. We put more in. I want receipts. So Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, was released on October 21st, 1988 from Trankus International. It opened up in first place. In front of 1,679 screens, making $6.8 million opening weekend. Second weekend, it dropped 34%, but still brought in $4.5 million, maintaining that number one spot. Total gross of the film was $17.7 million against a $5 million budget. So they upped the budget a couple million, and even though... And... It, it still made money for them. Trikus still saw dollar signs. It might not have been the profit that they were looking for or hoped for, but it was still an earnest profit, which clearly made them rush production for part five, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. That debacle thing, that 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 nightmare of a movie. Uh, that'll be coming up soon. Mm, I am, but I'm not looking forward to talking about that one because that's one of my least favorite movies of the franchise. And yeah, but it's coming soon. So anyway, back to this. Um, so you're going to go far, kid. You ain't going to believe this. Well, you used to fit right here. I'd hold you up and say to your mother, this kid's going to be the best kid in the world. This kid's going to be somebody better than anybody ever knew. And you grew up good and wonderful. It was great just watching. Every day was like a privilege. So this is going to Ellie Cornell and Danielle Harris, our leading two sisters here, who uh, 
Allie Cornell played Rachel and Daniel Harris, who played Jamie. Allie Cornell went on to have uh, I, not the career I think she would have hoped for, although she still did work, um, little projects here and there. I wouldn't see her again pop up until 2003, where she played a officer SWAT team. She played some sort of uh, just action person. I, I, I'm not sure what she played in uh, House of the Dead from 2003, but she's in it. I remember her popping up with a gun saying, follow me, this, that, and third. I, that movie is absolute dog shit. And I, I hate the fact that I'm even bringing it up on the air here. But uh, yeah, that's a movie. And I saw it in the theater back in 2003. And um, oh, you want to talk about the worst of the worst? Whew, that's one. Um, and then Daniel Harris, who is pretty much today's leading scream queen of the horror genre. Um, she has went on to have one hell of a career. Uh, popping up on Roseanne. Um, I think she did Roseanne before she even did this, to be honest. Uh, she popped up in Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. She was uh, she was Bruce Willis's daughter in The Last Boy Scout. She was in Stallone's Daylight. She was in, a couple years later after that, she popped up in Urban Legend. Um, and then from there, she went on to do Hatchet, Two, three, and four. See no evil. Two. Uh, Danielle Harris is in a lot of stuff. She even came back to the franchise for Rob Zombie's Halloween and Halloween Two, where she played Annie Brackett. And uh, yeah, she's this. I, I'm gonna comfortably say, confidently say that she is today's leading screen queen for the horror community, without a question, hands down. That's Danielle Harris. So she's definitely went on to make you know a name for herself. She even popped up recently in Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So a very pregnant Danielle Harris at that, at mind you. But still, she popped up in it, and um, it's nice seeing her in a Tarantino film. Uh, so yeah, she's still getting a lot of gigs and, and working comfortably, and uh, she's still got a lot more to come. So let's meet the cast. Hey, you guys. Everybody focus up, okay? All eyes here. I would like to announce that Ben and I are planning to produce a musical number from Godspell for the talent show tonight. <clears throat> I'm sorry, Ben is producing. I'm directing slash choreographing. I'm only speaking from personal experience, but if you can't carry a tune, don't come into the audition environment and waste our time. For serious, okay? Okay, and bring a lot of movement clothes, AKA jazz shoes, dance belts, lycras, et al. And seriously, FYI, you guys, this is not an excuse to get out of your regular activities. This is an excuse to do some good musical theater. So be prepared, be enthusiastic, and leave your bullshit attitude and baggage at the door, because we don't need it. So, outside of Ellie Cornell and Danielle Harris, we have Donald Pleasance returning as Dr. Sam Loomis. Like I mentioned in the episode itself, we got George P. Wilbur credited as Michael Myers, even though we know Tom Morgan played him in a handful of scenes. Bo Star from Goodfellas, like I also mentioned before, is in this as Sheriff Ben Meeker. Kathleen Kinmont plays Kelly Meeker, his daughter. Kathleen Kinmont would go on to be the Bride of the Reanimator a year after this. She had minor roles in That Thing You Do. She's got roles here and there. Um, 
Sasha Jensen as Brady. Sasha Jensen was also in Dazed and Confused, for those of you remembering that episode. Brady, uh, I'm sorry, not Brady. Sasha played um, Don. Um, he popped up uh, years later in a skateboard film back in 2003 called Grind. Uh, I remember seeing him in Ghoulies 2, the same year as this, actually. And, uh, yeah, now I see him pop up from time to time in the, uh, he's, he's currently doing the convention circuit, you know, you see him popping up in all these hard conventions and reunions and whatnot, and that's kind of what he's doing. He's laying low, um, I know he's still around doing stuff, um, but as far as, like, acting, I, I, I think his acting days are behind him for now, and he's just kind of adjusted to the circuit as they call it with these uh genre f- uh, stars and whatnot they kind of start doing convention rounds and uh make you laugh you people a lot of people write off this as like you know where actors go to die the whole convention thing no that mentality is old school it needs to go away because they're making good money they're doing it for that and they're doing it for the fans you know and and Look, us as fans, we don't deserve dick, you know? But it's nice to pay some money to go into an event where you can see all of these actors. And if you want to see them and get more personal and maybe get a picture or an autograph, kick in some money, you know? You got to support support the thing. And um, you do it. Um, and they're just fun. They you, People dress up in cosplay there's panels, there's interviews, there's just thousands upon thousands of other people who are around just having a blast. And that's what these cons are. Horror conventions are my favorite. I cannot wait for September when Monster Mania comes back to the Baltimore area and Hunt Valley um, for our convention. I mean, there's been conventions popping up left and right. They're everywhere these days. But the one that I'm talking about cl- close to you know, our local convention they just announced Robert England, Christina Ricci, um, Tom Atkins, and uh, Stacy Nelkins from Part Three, and uh, it's still being announced. And I'm looking forward to it. Oh, Joe Bob Briggs is coming! Can't wait to meet that guy. I've never met him before. So yeah, conventions are a blast. Um, yeah. So this is Crow. Well, my friend, this is Crew. But don't even think about it. You don't look like you could hang, Jermaine. The name's Jamal, and I'll fuck your crew up. Who are they? Who are they? All right, Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, was directed by Dwight H. Little. Dwight H. Little. I had a few films prior to this, um, kind of built up his resume. Uh, He followed this up with The Phantom of the Opera in 1989, speaking of Robert Englund, who plays the titular character in that film. He kind of made... uh, kind of turned the Phantom of the Opera into a slasher. Never seen it with my own two eyes, but I've heard many things about it. Some good, some bad. I remember seeing the old VHS cover box. My aunt, my Aunt Debbie used to own it. And I remember when I was in her basement checking out her old collection, I would come across this from time to time. So that's how this is uh, kind of implanted in my memory. I followed that up with Mark for Death, Seagal film, and then two years later did Rapid Fire with the late Brandon Lee. He did Willie, he did Free Willie 2. He wrote Broken Arrow. 
He directed Murder at 1600, Wesley Snipes, the Anaconda sequel, Hunt for the Blood Orchid, the Tekken film, and his last film was back in 2017, a film called Last Rampage. <clears throat> written for this... Alright. So it was produced by Paul Freeman. Written for the screen by Alan B. McElroy, who is Dwight H. Little's partner. So pretty much everything that Dwight's directed, he's written for the most part. Um, but he's also written Spawn. He wrote Left Behind back in 2000. Unfortunately, he's responsible for that fucking atrocious ballistic X versus Sever. But he kind of made good with that a year later, writing Wrong Turn, the original. But it's funny enough, he came back almost 20 years later to do the remake that came out earlier this year. That was also written by Alan B. McElroy. Uh, he wrote John Cena's The Marine. He wrote The Marine 4, funny enough. And he wrote The Condemned 2. So a lot of direct-to-video WWE films it looks like he's been uh, doing. But he's still doing work, like I said. Just had the new Wrong Turn film recently. And I'm sure he's sitting around somewhere right now writing his new script for the next film. What that is, have no clue. Music by Alan Howarth, who I already talked about in this episode. Edited by Curtis Clayton and cinematography by Peter Lyons Collister, who I'm not familiar with, but it's unfortunate we didn't have Dean Cundy return for this. Uh, this would be the first Halloween film that was not shot by Dean Cundy, but I'm not mad at the, the cinematography of this movie in general. Um, I'm actually quite happy with his replacement. If he had to be replaced, you know, I'm, I'm fine with the... Um, I'm fine with Collister because it's beautiful. The cinematography in this movie is beautiful. I've already raved about the opening credits, which have a lot to do with the cinematographer. Um, a lot of cool shots, like the one I mentioned before with the police car driving off with Michael standing behind it. Um, the shot with him when the door opens up in the nightmare scene with him holding the knife and the, the way the light kind of like shines through him. Love that effect. Um, the cinematography in this movie is pretty goddamn good. Um, it's a suitable replacement from Dean Cundy. You know, yeah, I wish we would have gotten Dean back for this, but he's not going to do every single Halloween film. It's, it's just not going to happen. He gave us three films. I'm fine with that, really. I am. All right, so finger licking good. Finger licking good. All right, so my finger licking good scene for this is the rooftop scene. It's so intense, even to this day. Um, I, I talked about it during the during the plot breakdown, but the, the whole rooftop sequence, just knowing now how they shot it, um, I kind of appreciate it a little bit more. Even not knowing how they shot it, it this film or this scene has always been effective, um, and it, it still holds up. It's just a really good scene that... Um, and that, that gives me genuine tension. I, I dig it. I, I want to be, you know, in, in intensified or whatever the word is while watching horror movies, especially ones that I've seen buku times. It's, it's, it's nice to have, it's nice to be able to have that feeling that you had, you know, when you were young watching a movie as an adult. So that rooftop for me, hands down, is my favorite moment. Biggest takeaways? Mr. Madison... 
what you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. I've got a few. That opening credit sequence, and I've got three exclamation marks in my notes because it's just, I've already raved about it. It, it. It's so beautiful. I fucking love the opening shot. Uh, the openings credits so much. Howarth's score is so underrated. He never gets talked about enough within the horror community. It's always Carpenter. Carpenter this, Carpenter that. Howarth has been on board since the second film. And this is, film was kind of the passing of the torch. The reins were given to him. Full control over this music. That was all him. Of course, he got Carpenter's blessing before he, you know took on the role by himself. Uh, he would go on to return for the fifth film and the sixth, but that's it. Um, he did the music for the first handful of films and has not come back since, and I'm happy with everything that he's given us. Um, you know, he was kind of... These three films, which I personally consider, you know, the Thorn trilogy, is... They're all done by Howarth. Um, he incorporates a lot of atmosphere into his music, and I appreciate that. It's the little things that I dig, and that's just one of the many. Um, his cues with certain scenes are on point, and um, I just I I just can't say enough about the man. Um, he's an obvious protege from Carpenter. He's a uh, very synth-oriented composer, which I've always appreciated, even though this film, it's light on the synth, and he kind of brings back that piano element that the first film carried, and I really, really appreciate that. Um, but, you know, as far as these four films, I'm sorry, as far as these three films go, you know, you're going to see, once we get to parts five and six, the next two films, I'm not going to be taking it easy like I have for this movie. I love this movie. These next two movies, holy fucking shit, guys. Hang on. That's all I can say. And finally, look, I get the ending, but I don't know. I kind of wish they went for it with the next film. Like, continued with Jamie having the curse now. She's the new Myers, so to speak. She's going to start off in her relatives, which... Thinking about it now out loud while I'm saying it does not make a lick of sense because she's related to Michael. She's related to Myers. So why not just have Myers finish up the family tree? You know, I still want to see how Halloween five would have been if it was Jamie in the new role being the killer, you know, and you don't have to necessarily do without Myers overall. You can still bring him back and kind of be like a, not a guide, but kind of like an almost Grim Reaper-esque presence with him, if so, if, if you will. Um, if, if you're picking up what I'm putting down, kind of like have him guide Jamie while she's doing her killing, so, you know, or, or something like that, you know. Anything other than what they actually gave us with part five, because, yeah, just... 
obviously Mustafa Akkad and Paul Freeman were not fans. But actually, forget about Freeman. This was Akkad and Mustafa. Just no one loves Michael Myers more than Mustafa. <clears throat> no one loves Michael Myers more than Mustafa Akkad loved Michael Myers. That's for damn sure. And he would do everything in his power to protect Myers because, let's face it, that's his baby. This series, like me and Sean have said time and time throughout, it's the man's bread and butter. Without Myers, it, it, it it's just, yeah, without Myers. Tried it once, it'll never happen again. <laughs> um, so yeah, th- those are my biggest takeaways for the movie by far. Mulligan moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? Look, that pink blonde mask needs to go. 86 that crap. And this film is not flawless still, but that's my big, my main... God, why is that in this movie? Is that fucking mask. Even though it's only in it for like one, not even two seconds. It, it's um, I'm a big fan of continuity. And that just throws everything out the goddamn window whenever I see that shot. I hate it. Ugh. So yeah, that's my mulligan moment. All right, so the body count for Halloween 4. We have 19 confirmed kills with, with about 9 of them total being shown on screen. So we got about 10 people that were killed off screen, but they still count. A kill's a kill. Total body count for Halloween 4, guys, is 19. Mm, getting up there now, the numbers. My favorite uh, favorite death in this movie... <sighs> I'm not going to go and say Kelly. Am I going to say Kelly? Although I do love Bucky. I do love me some Bucky death. I don't know. It's a tough one. Uh, it's either Kelly... But, uh, Brady, though, with the head and the neck, uh, you know what, Kelly, Kelly's death, it's iconic, it, it really is, Kelly Meeker's death, shotgun, uh, pinned to a wall, impalement by shotgun, yeah, that, that's gonna be my winner, my pick, so yeah, 19 overall kills, my favorite being Kelly Meeker's death, and final thoughts of the movie, well, I've already said pretty much everything I needed to say about this, by far my favorite sequel or one of my favorite sequels um definitely one that i recommend to people who have seen the first maybe the first two still want to get their myers fix in a new york minute i will point them in the film in this film's direction um yeah this the it's not perfect but it's nostalgic um it's it's Pretty well written, in my opinion, and um, like I mentioned, the cinematography and the music for this film are just chef's kiss. Love it. Um, so yeah, overall, I mean, four out of five, four stars. That's what I'd give it for. A, or Sean would say five thumbs up or four thumbs up. Actually, that makes more sense. Um, so yeah, I'm a huge fan. If you haven't seen this movie. Please check it out. I implore you to seek this movie and um, have fun. See what you guys think. You know, let me know. Tag me or comment. You know, what do you guys think of Halloween 4? Do you love it? Do you hate it? Can you do without it? Or is it whatever? You know, just want to hear from you guys. That's all. 
All right, so this episode is sponsored by Vincent Drug, Haddonfield's go-to pharmacy for all your health needs and other this and that. Right now, they're running a two-for-one sale on all Pepsi Blue products, so taste the new generation and stock up with those savings. That's Vincent Drug, as featured in such Hollywood films as The Sandlot, Stephen King's The Stand, and this week's film effect movie, Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. As with all the fake sponsorships, this is a fake advertisement with no such sale taking place. Please do not call the real Vincent Drug. They will laugh at you. You will cry. All that being said, guys, this film definitely gets the film effects seal of approval, and that'll bring things home for this edition of the show. One down, many more to follow. We are going to return next week, guys. Monday, we've got Phantom Thread. Looking forward to some PTA coming to the show. And, of course, we are joined by none other than Justin Boyd rounding out the Goodfellas crew, making a one-off appearance for a non-Scorsese flick. So that'll drop Monday. And then also coming is Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers. But that's not coming for another few weeks. Um, Probably sometime in mid-July we'll have that episode out. Believe me, Sean and I are in no rush to watch that piece of shit, nor are we really in no rush to watch this, the sixth one. But gotta, we got to commit, you know, got to commit to it. So, yeah, and who knows? Maybe my thoughts will change a little bit. Maybe, just maybe, doubt it, but maybe. Um, so, yeah, guys, same film effect place, same film effect time. And uh, just also before we get out of here, reminder that we are on podpage.com slash the-film-effect-podcast. That is our website where you can check out direct links to all of our episodes. You can find our merch store from there as well as some other cool, neat things. Again, that is podpage.com slash the-film-effect-podcast. We're on Facebook and Instagram. Our handles on both of them are the Film Effect Podcast. We're on Twitter at Film Effect Pod. For you old-timers, we got the email system up and working, and that is email is going to be thefilmeffectpodcast at gmail.com. Guys, thank you sincerely so goddamn much for joining us for another episode of the show. Um, If you've been a fan since day one, thank you. If you're just now tuning in, thank you. If you're relatively new to the show, thank you. If you're still listening to this episode and you're at the end and you're hearing me say all this, then thank you. You know, it's so many thanks. I, I... can't do it without you guys. You're the reason why I keep on doing this. Um, and 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 if Sean was here with me this week, he'd be mirroring he'd be mirroring everything I'm saying to you. So it, believe me when I say it, it goes from both of us. It comes from both of us. And um, yeah, we love you guys. We we can't thank you enough for your ears, your attention, and um, yeah, just come on back and and. We'll do it again. <laughs> All right. So, oh man, Sean's not here. I can't. There's no witty. There's no way. There's no. Uh, so, we guess uh, we'll see you guys next time when the theater lights go dim and the credits begin to roll. I've been Ed. It's been fun, but now it's done. All right, guys. Jack you later. Take care.